uh, together at fir- to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17. This is God's holy and infallible word. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? And do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat uh, this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must first examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let us pray. We ask, blessed Lord, that you would help us to understand and to believe and to receive and to grow in grace by means of your holy word as it is preached. Lord, help me to speak the words that you would have for us. But Lord, guide us by your Holy Spirit to receive and to believe and to grow in grace. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. It has been the practice for this church that for years, every time we have the Lord's Supper, that this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, has been read, and it's an appropriate passage to be read before taking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the logical reason for reading it is because it's a passage uh, that gives a warning about the seriousness of this sacrament. Um, from now on, um, I will continue to uh, go through and use this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, but the, the book of church order, or the directory for worship contained therein, The directory for worship tells us that we are to use both the institution of the Lord's Supper given here, 
and the warnings included, but also the other parts of Scripture which include the Lord's Supper and its institution. That would be from Luke, from uh, Matthew and Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So what we'll do is we'll have a rotation of Scripture, but very often coming back to this one as well. Now, having all that said, it is of utmost importance for us to have great familiarity with this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. For a church that's going to have the Lord's Supper once a month, this is going to be one of the most applied passages in all of Scripture for us. So we may as well get to know it in a way that we have not known it before. And I hope that by God's grace that we'll come to a greater understanding of it this morning. This passage here is given as a solemn, loving warning. God warns his children because he loves them. If you love someone, you, you don't want them to fall off a cliff if they're walking down the path to destruction. You warn them and you tell them the path that they should go. And then God uh, helps us in that way. But you can say that this is also a passage of warning for those who might be in a spiritual stupor or a spiritual sl- slumber or sleep or may have not been awakened to a, a true life in Christ. Maybe they've been in the church for some time as members or even visitors, but they have not received and believed upon Jesus Christ for salvation. This is a challenging passage, and that God can use the loving warning of this passage to wake many people up. So, um, in that regard, we will look again in, that, in the context of in which 1 Corinthians 11 is given. Uh, this first epistle to the Corinthians was given here uh, to a church, of course, in Corinth, that came out of gross paganism and evil, gross immorality and wickedness. Uh, There was a verb that the Greeks used from the word Corinth, and it was to Corinthianize. If you did that, you you corrupted someone. That was the use of the word. That was how notoriously wicked this city was. But God had saved many from this pagan culture in this, out of this paganism and brought them to himself. But despite God's great work in this church in Corinth, uh, there were still some problems. Um, we're not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to give you a brief summary of some of the problems that this church had. In chapter 1, uh, rather than depending on, upon Christ, um, there were some that had a, a cult of personality. Their, their focus was not on Christ, but upon men. They would say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. So there was a cult of personality going on in that church, and Paul corrected that issue. In chapter 5, there was a a lack of church discipline among that church there. Uh, They had a man guilty of incest, and he was not disciplined. And then Paul exhorts them that they were uh, to take care of that matter. The good news is that in 2 Corinthians, there's a suggestion that such a man has been repentant, and God blessed and used church discipline to bring uh, him to his senses. Uh, chapter 6, there are lawsuits that many are filing against one another rather than, going, uh, to, rather than going before the church and having the leadership of the church and the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit to the church help them to resolve these disputes with, with each other. Instead, they, they, they air out their dirty laundry before the pagans in court. Today's chapter, Paul's dealing with the uh, abuses of the Lord's Supper. It was taken in an irreverent fashion 
and it was taken without really much self-examination or judging of oneself. As we look at today's text in detail, the main focus is that God calls you to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy fashion. God calls each of you to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy fashion. We'll see this in two main points. We'll look at first unworthy partaking, what that looks like, and then we'll contrast that secondly with worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper. Let's look at this first main point, unworthy partaking. Now, there are two main classes of unworthiness, you could say, in how they partook. The first was a selfish, careless irreverence. A selfish, careless irreverence. The second was unrepentant, sinful partaking. So let's look at this first one, this selfish, careless irreverence. Verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Then we'll skip to verse 20 and following. When you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Now, there are not a lot of details given here. We don't know exactly why some were doing this, um, but it's very likely that some had arrived early before even maybe the the church service began and and they started to eat and drink, eat the bread and drink the wine. Um, Maybe they did this once or twice and they said, wow, that that was pleasant and enjoyable. I don't have to go home and have supper now. I just had all that wonderful food and and man, I, I felt real great after all that wine I had. I think I'm going to come back early next week or next month, whenever, how often they did it. And maybe some had this habit of arriving early and enjoying themselves, indulging themselves with uh, a great abundance of bread and then feeling great after a good abundance of wine. Now, there's nothing wrong with wine. Uh, scripture says in Psalm 104, verse 15, Wine maketh glad the heart of man. But there is something wrong with an excess leading to drunkenness. And, and that's what was the problem here. It says some of them had become drunk in verse 21. They're going for a religious worship service and they're leaving the place staggering out of the church building. Next, the text gives us some clues. It gives us some clues of why, perhaps, the church leadership didn't stop such selfish behavior. It's likely that those who were guilty of such acts were given um, favoritism because they were more financially affluent. Now, here's the case I have for this. Verse 22, it says that those of them who were guilty of this problem owned their homes. They had homes in which to go back to. Um, those who came late and missed out were those described as being hungry and being ashamed and having nothing. Verse 22. So it was uh, some uh, who you could say were maybe destitute. Um, Dr. Kistemacher says this, 
speaking of the uh, those who were indulging, who were better to better well off, he said, instead, they ate without waiting for the day laborers and slaves. Well, why did why do they matter anyway? Maybe some of them thought, or or maybe they we joke with them and say, ah, you, if you snooze, you lose. You, you're too late. They were careless and selfish. Now, again, let's get back to the church leadership. Why did they not maybe stop some of these individuals? Why didn't they, they say, what are you doing? Don't you want to leave something for the rest, of who, those who might, not, who might show up a, a bit late or later? The reason maybe the church officials maybe didn't say anything is because, well, you can't say that to these people who are the greatest tithers in the church, can you? What if you offend them and they want to leave? This sort of favoritism is found elsewhere in the New Testament. I want us to look at James uh, chapter 2. James chapter 2. So again, we have abuse of those who have homes of their own versus those who have nothing. And then here we have in James 2, starting at verse 1. Actually, we'll start at verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and there also comes a in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down by my footstool have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And that's what was the problem there in Corinth as well. It is not the rich who, it is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. In other words, they were rich in the culture that James is talking about who were abusing the church. Therefore, why give favoritism to the rich there? Getting back to 1 Corinthians 11. The other problem, besides this, you could say this selfish, careless irreverence, the other main problem was this unrepentant, sinful partaking. Look at verses uh, 27 through 30. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many are among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now this passage, or these verses here, it doesn't say outright that unworthy partaking is because of unrepentant sin. It doesn't say that. However, by a careful reasoning with the text, we can come to that conclusion. It says, to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to be guilty of not having self-examination. We are called to both self-examination and judging of ourselves when we partake of the Lord's Supper. 
says there in verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. How can you judge yourself or examine yourself without the law of God being in question? How could you judge yourselves or examine yourselves without thinking about the issue of sin and our failure to keep God's law? It's impossible to examine yourself or to judge yourself without bringing into the law of God or the notion of sin. It would be an illogical possibility for that to happen. It says because there were some who did not judge themselves, who did not examine themselves, they were weak and sick and a number sleep. That word there for sleep is is a kind way or a gentle way of saying some of them were taken out of that life in a premature fashion early. In other words, they died, uh, they became ill and died. And what was the cause, according to Paul? Because they took of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. Now, this sickness or weakness, I believe it's not just physical. It could be um, of the mind, mentally. It could be spiritual, a spiritual plight, a spiritual trial. I believe if we do not examine ourselves and we're living in sin and wickedness and we take of the Lord's Supper, it could lead to us grieving the Holy Spirit. And if you grieve the Holy Spirit, all sorts of bad things can happen to you physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually. It says here that um, what happened was, again, they were not examining and judging uh, themselves. You could say that they were having a careless or presumptuous way about them. Um, Another way that is common that some don't judge themselves rightly when taking the Lord's Supper is because of false doctrine. Growing up in the Catholic Church, um, I later found out the notion of what they called this, but there's a doctrine in the Catholic Church. It's called ex opera operato. It means by the work, worked. Or some have have translated often, by the work of the worker. That's how grace is given in the Catholic Church. And that's why you could have someone living in horrible, terrible sin for many years. Maybe they're living in adultery. Maybe they're fornicating for years, having a a living boyfriend or living girlfriend. And they go to Mass and they're relieved because grace has been given to them. The words of institution from the priest have been given to them. And they could feel at peace that they've been forgiven. Because it doesn't matter what their faith is. It doesn't matter if they have repentance at all. It's by the work of the worker who's doing his job. He's up there giving grace unto me. And that's not what uh, Scripture teaches. And we'll look at the confession of what is the contrary position to that. Um, To be fair... I know of Protestants as well going to conservative non-denominational churches who are not divorced but living with someone else who's not their spouse for many years and the church seems to be fine with that as well. So it doesn't just go on in the Catholic Church. It goes on even in many churches in our community as well. So having witnessed all of these ways of unfaithful partaking, let's look at some worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper. The first way is found at the end of the words of institution. Let's look at the words of institution again, starting at verse 23. It says there, 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This sacrament is not merely symbolic. Yes, the elements, the bread and the wine, they represent something. They are symbolic in that sense. But there is a true spiritual presence of Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we partake by faith, God works his grace in us to help us grow in holiness by means of grace offered through this sacrament. Remember, the, the, the ordinary means of grace are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And this is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is an essential means of grace to help you grow in your faith. Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism 91 says this, How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The answer is, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not by any virtue in them or in him that doth administer them. So it's not by the work of the work, but only in the blessing of Christ are are they effectual and the working of his spirit in them that by faith receive them. So you can't just go to a church service and without faith just take it willy and nilly. You have to examine whether you have, whether you have faith in Christ and whether you are living in accordance to God's law in accordance to that holy word that he has given. It says, Those who partake in true faith, according to verse 26, they, it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about this. Not every one of you is called to proclaim Christ from a pulpit. But every true Christian who partakes of the Lord's Supper does proclaim Christ. And you proclaim Christ when you partake of the Lord's Supper. You are participating in a visual sermon of sorts. That you are confessing that Christ's body was pierced for my transgressions. You are proclaiming to the world that Christ's blood was shed for my sins. And then I'm embracing this Lord Jesus Christ by faith. So each and every one of us, as a church, as a whole, that take partake in faith, it says in verse 26 that as often as you eat and drink this cup, you, each of you, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Such a worthy partaking requires self-examination or judging of yourself, though. Let's look at how we are to do this. Verse 28, a man must first examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 31 and 32, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. It calls us to examine ourselves, to judge ourselves. And this is not the only place in Scripture where we're called for self-examination. 
2 um, Corinthians 13.5, listed there in your outline. Test yourselves to see that you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So the gist of that examination is determine, is Christ Jesus in you by faith? Are you, do you believe and receive and trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Paul called for a judging of ourselves by looking at our, ourselves and our lives. And do, do our lives conform to what he calls the deeds of the flesh, or do our lives conform to the uh, fruit of the Spirit? Let's look at Galatians 5. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you, will, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immor- immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, and he did so in 1 Corinthians 6, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now when we look at this list, especially in Galatians 5, which ones you think might characterize you? Now, if we're honest with ourselves... Such a list does bring conviction, doesn't it? Strife, jealousy. How many of us have had outbursts of anger, envying? Uh, how many of us maybe have abused uh, alcohol uh, too much? Now, here's the thing. Each and, of a, each and every one of us sin daily in thought, word, and deed. These sorts of things we can stumble upon and stumble in ourselves. But what he's getting at here is that if your life, if your Christian walk is characterized more by the deeds of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit, you need to examine yourself to see whether you have Christ in you. Whether you are truly His or not. Now, that can be for someone who has even professed faith in Christ. Maybe they have not truly come to a repentance and a true saving faith in Christ. These are loving words as given by the Holy Spirit. And it's not my words, it's, but it's the words of the Holy Spirit given unto Paul. Verse 21 of today's text. Just as I have warned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 97 
It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the catechism. What is required in the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience. Lest coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Galatians 5 is an excellent passage that we are to use to see whether we have true repentance and have a life characterized by new obedience. True repentance involves not merely having a little sorrow for sin. It involves a turning away for sin. Now, some might be in the church and they might say, well, I'm taking the Lord's Supper, but I feel sorry for, for such and such sin. But after I leave church, I'm probably going to do it again later tonight or tomorrow. That's not repentance. Each of us should endeavor to be a Christian who has new obedience. We'll never be perfect in this life. This walk of sanctification will never be perfect. But if you're striving and you're at war with sin, it, that is a characteristic of a true believer. And that's what God would want you to examine yourself to see. Lastly, he says, worthy partaking is not selfish and it doesn't exclude others from the sacrament. Verses uh, 33 through 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not to come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Brothers and sisters, God calls you to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy fashion. Unworthy partaking is selfish, presumptuous, doesn't take sin seriously. Faithful partaking, worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper calls you to examine yourself, whether you're walking with Christ. Examine your sins. Judge whether or not you are truly in Christ. Examine those things in your life to see whether you are more characterized by the works of the flesh or the, the sins of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, or by the fruit of the Spirit. None of us, not one of us in this room and not one of us in the church anywhere whatsoever can ever take of the Lord's Supper and say, I really have no sin to repent of. Unless you are a Wesleyan perfectionist and believe that you've been totally sanctified and you stop sinning. But our confession says we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. And every one of us has something that we ought to examine ourselves and repent of when we take of the Lord's Supper. Now, if this message has got you wondering, well, I don't know if I really know whether I'm part of Christ or not. Believe the gospel that Christ was broken for sinners such as you. That Christ was pierced. Well, let me correct myself. Christ's body wasn't broken in fulfillment of prophecy. His not one bone of his body was broken. He was pierced for our transgression. He was chastised for our sins. His blood was shed for our sins. And God accepted his sacrifice, raised him from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, whereby he is willing to save to the uttermost anyone and everyone who goes and pleads the name of Jesus Christ by faith. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, help us, we pray, to receive this, your holy word. 
that we would use your holy word, Lord, not as something to discourage us, but, Lord, as something to stir us up to love and good deeds. Help us, we pray, to take the call seriously, to examine ourselves, whether we are truly in the faith, whether Christ is in us, whether our lives can be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit or the deeds of the flesh. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our many sins and work in us a heart after new obedience. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our hymn of dedication, uh, we'll stand and sing 203, according to thy gracious word. Let's stand and sing 203.